It's time for Security Now. Steve Gibson is here, and we're going to talk about uh, what he says is the most sophisticated malware ever written. Flame. It's next on Security Now. Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Audio bandwidth for security now is provided by the new Winamp for Android, featuring wireless sync and one-click iTunes import. Now with free daily music downloads and full-length CD listening parties. Download it for free at winamp.com slash Android. Video bandwidth for security now is provided by Cashfly at C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 355, recorded May 30th, 2012, poking holes in TCP. Security Now is brought to you by Netflix. Watch thousands of TV episodes and movies on your PC, Mac, iPad, iPhone, or TV instantly. All streamed directly to you, saving you time, money, and hassle. For your free 30-day trial, visit Netflix.com slash twit. It's time for security now. Time to protect yourself. Batten down the security hatches, if you will, with this man right here, our explainer-in-chief, Mr. Steve Gibson of GRC.com. And a good day to you, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be back with you again, as always. And speaking of battening down the hatches, we've got two big stories uh, in our news is the, the details which are known so far... And they're still a little scant, but because this has just happened, and that is a the most sophisticated piece of malware or malware system ever found was recently uncovered by Kaspersky when they were looking for something else. They stumbled over this thing. That's how penicillin was found. (laughs) And and uh, and uh, post-it notes. So it's uh, it's a long-standing tradition not quite the glue we were looking for but we think we could use this so what makes it so sophisticated now remember yeah. stuxnet and i presume duco were, were written by governments right well and they yes and what makes this so sophisticated is the the complexity and the power of it it uses heretofore unknown injection techniques i mean basically it has a a ton of new technology which has never been seen before it is believed that this has to have been generated by a nation state it may be more than five years old pieces of it have have turned up now that they know what they're looking for they can go back and realize that virus total was seeing some instances of this and and there, it, it renames itself at one point, and those names have been picked up in archives from 2007. So, and, and whereas Stuxnet and Dooku, well, Stuxnet specifically, was extremely focused on, as we now know, on upsetting the centrifuges of Iran's nuclear enrichment program, this is a comprehensive, general-purpose, high-power espionage tool. Now, what we don't yet know is how widespread it is. Apparently, it is all over the Middle East, sort of anecdotally, that much we have. Uh, but anyway, we're going we're to talk about that. 
Um, and then also what I mentioned we would talk about last week is the main topic, and that is I titled this Poking Holes in TCP. This was this came to my attention from a bunch of people who were tweeting it to me when it was in the news. And the, the, this was two researchers at University of Michigan have found some new ways of injecting malicious code or malicious content, to make it more generic, um, because it is, malicious content into TCP connections without needing a man-in-the-middle presence. So they can be be standing to the side, essentially, and interfere with, with TCP. So... This is that that of course caught my attention. Now the good news is, it's it's more limited than the title and the synopsis makes it sound. So it's less of a concern, but it's a perfect topic for us on a on a technical podcast like this because it gives us a chance to look more closely at TCP, which is the internet's you know most used protocol. More data moves across TCP than, than, you know, everything else summed up. Um, well, maybe, maybe streaming now with uh, video and audio over UDP uh, offsets that. But, you know, all of our web pages, you know, all of the connection-oriented traffic is, is TCP-based. And we've talked about in podcasts past the way TCP works. We'll look at it a little more closely relative to the, the glitch that these guys have found, which is, you know, interesting and, and provides some lessons for us. So I think a great podcast today. Oh, very And then a, a little bit of random miscellaneous news. And all of that, thanks so, to Mr. Steve Gibson. Let's, let's kick it. We don't have a commercial, so just go, baby, go. Let's get into uh, Flamer. Uh, or flame. flame. I don't flame, know if I it's, like it's Flamer called, quite so much. It's, called fl- it's been called Flamer. <laughs> it's been called Flame. And, in fact, a Hegarian research group um, who I'll be talking about, Crisis, um, they, they named it before they realized what it, what it was internally named. They named it Skywiper. So various people were tweeting to me about Skywiper as if it was something new, um, but it's the same as this, this super sophisticated malware that blows everything else that we've seen before away. Kaspersky was interviewed. They were the people who who first discovered this, having been asked by, um, I think it was the ITU, the International Telecommunications Union, um, to to look into this. That they were they were looking for something which was wiping the drives of of machines through the throughout the Middle East. And what so in looking at those machines, they found something else that they that was before this unknown to them and that caught their attention um the the guys at kaspersky are calling it the most sophisticated malware ever found um dwarfing stuxnet and dooku it is 20 meg of code in total for the whole thing and get this leo it in it bundles sql light as its database oh, back in ain't it so when you install it, you get SQLite? You get an instance of SQL, SQLite running in your system because what it, 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 I'll go through the, 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 the means of data gathering. They need a but database? It, 
It builds a comprehensive structured database of everything it collects wow. as on its SDN. No wonder it's 20 megs. Holy cow. <laughs> Yeah, it's like a little OS that has just set up residence inside of your, your main operating Jeez. system. Jeez. So here we have 20 meg, whereas Stuxnet was only a couple hundred K. So, you know, it's it's 10 times the size of Stuxnet. One of the reasons being that, as we saw, it has a, 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 a complete database architecture. Um, so now Iran got into it, and their, their equivalent of CERT, their their um, internet security agency that, that that's called MAR, M-A-H-E-R, um, they have a posting that I'll quote from. They said, having conducted multiple, oh, and, and one reason is, you know, it's apparently rampant within Iran. So having conducted multiple investigations during the last few months, the MAR Center, the Iranian CERT, CC, Following the continuous research on the targeted attacks of Stuxnet and Dooku since 2010, announces the latest detection of a new attack for the very first time. The attack, codenamed Flame, due to, and that's due to some names contained within the reverse engineered code, is launched, uh, the, the attack, codenamed Flame, is launched by a new malware. The name Flame comes from one of the attack modules located at various places in the decrypted malware code. In fact, this malware is a platform which is capable of receiving and installing various modules for different goals. At the time of writing, none of the 43 tested antiviruses could detect any of the malicious components. Nevertheless, a detector was created by Mar Center and delivered to selected organizations and companies in the first days of May. And now a removal tool is ready to be delivered. Okay, so um, some features of the malware. Uh, it can be distributed. I, and I, sh I should comment that, that un understand this is compiled code. There's no source for it. They're dealing with 20 megs. And I mean, that itself makes the, the task of reverse engineering this behemoth very daunting because, you know, they've got to they've got to watch it operate in, you know, in, in, in a controlled mode with with their own spy tools running. And these are the people at Crisis and Kaspersky and, and, and the various organizations that have received this are now to, I mean, like right now, as we're recording this, they are they're working together, sharing their information and and working to understand it. But this task of understanding it is a matter of of both watching it, w watching it to see what it does and, you know, like watch it hook things, watch it inject code into different modules, uh, run rootkit uh, checkers against it to see which low-level kernel hooks it has grabbed in order to hide itself. Um, I mean, it's so, so there's, there's the behavioral side. Then they also have to reverse engineer this. They have to decompile, you know, disassemble this code and, and then figure out what's in there that, whose behavior they haven't seen. So we'll be, you know, I imagine this will be peeling layers off of a very large onion for some time to come, and we'll be touching back on this 
as we learn more. So we, we do know that it can be distributed via removable networks and local area networks. Um, it's capable of sniffing the network detecting network resources and collecting lists of vulnerable passwords as they pass by in the clear. It can scan disks of the infected system looking for specific file extensions and contents. Um, it is able to perform screen captures of the, uh, of the infected machine when specific processes or windows are active. It's able to capture the contents of any fields filled out, even when obscured by asterisks or dots so that they're password fields. Um, it can turn on the system's attached microphone and record over a long period of time any sounds in the environment. All of this data is saved in an SQLite database, which is, it is then able to transfer um, en masse to... Uh, to control servers, um, it, there are more than 10 domains that have been identified as the, the command and control, the CNC servers. Um, it establishes secure encrypted connections with those servers through SSH and HTTPS protocols. So it's encrypting its traffic as well, uh, point to point. Um, it bypasses all known antivirus detection anti-malware and other security software it's able to infect X well, how, wait a minute how could it do that i mean well it, it it's well well first of all it wasn't known so that so none right. of these things knew to look for but it. now that but, they know can't won't they find it oh well oh absolutely and but but what, what it was doing also is it uses five different encryption technologies and three different compression Ooh. technologies. See, that's scary. If a, if a virus can bypass antivirus detection, that would be a scary technology to have available. Well, and remember that many of these new AVs have a problem with false positives right. because specifically because they are looking for things, not behavior – and not specific known signatures, but they're looking for suspicious code. And for example, you know, every every you know maybe half a year or so, someone will report that some random update of an AV package it now thinks that one of my exes right. that um, you know one of uh, GRC's freeware is suddenly you know viral. And it's like, no, it's not. It's you usually, know, pretty crappy stuff that does well, that. Well, but but again, but this is you know it's difficult to do because you you want it you'd like to catch things you don't know about, but you don't want to you don't want a false positive. So so what's significant is that neither behavior I mean even behavioral analysis didn't catch this apparently for five years nothing saw this hooking DLLs for example Stuxnet and 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 Dooku um, have re relatively straightforward code injection technology this is completely new this is this is using technology that we've never seen before so so nothing new how to look for it um so uh, it can infect xp vista and windows 7 um and it's it's apparently expert at infecting large-scale local networks um uh, quoting from one of the reports they said according to file naming conventions propagation methods, complexity level, precise targeting, and superb functionality, 
It seems that there is a close. Oh, I'm sorry. Th- th- this is still from Iran. It seems that there is a close relation to the Stuxnet and Dooku targeted attacks. Now, that actually turns out not to be the case. Kaspersky and Crisis, who who have looked at this independently, both think this is there. There's no connection. It was whatever this is. It was created by a different organization or group than Stuxnet and Dooku, whereas those were targeted for specific purposes, this is a a hugely comprehensive general purpose espionage tool which has been out there doing its job in secret maybe for five years. So they, they five uh, years. Well, maybe it does. Yes. Maybe it does get around antivirus. <laughs> Holy yeah. cow! Yeah, that's what I'm saying. That I mean, that's what has shocked people is they have found the. the but if it's a it's, spear phishing attack that's going after you know Iranian government installations, it might not be detected because it's just not out in the wild, or is it? Well, for example, let me scroll down to my notes. Um, uh. The one of the files, the core file which is downloaded by the initial loader is called MSSEC Manager, M-S-S-E-C-M-G-R dot O-C-X. So that's an ActiveX control of Windows. It renames itself, or rather that file is renamed by the installation component to WaveSUP3, S-U-P-3 dot D-R-V, that file has been observed was was observed in Europe in on December fifth of, of two thousand seven, so five years ago nearly, in the UAE on April twenty eighth in two thousand eight, and in the uh, and Iran for the first time on March first of twenty ten. So and it did not raise alarm. It didn't trip any alarm. No 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 Jeez behavior was seen. Louise. I know. I mean, this is. I mean, it sounds like science fiction that we're talking about, and it's as real as any of these malware threats that we've seen recently. So they said the research this is Iran continuing. The research on these samples implies that the recent incidents of mass data loss in Iran could be the outcome of some installed module of this threat. Now, again, that's at this point hypothetical. A list of the major infection components of this malware is presented below. These samples would be available for security software vendors. And they list some, but that's no longer unique. Then the crisis guys who are in Hungary, um, they're the laboratory of cryptography and system security. They're maintaining a, a, a paper that is tracking this. They're at crisiscrysus.hu. And their, their paper is crysus.hu slash skywiper slash skywiper.pdf. And that was just the name they assigned it randomly before they, they realized there was a name embedded in the code. So they have a technical report that they've put together um, noting that there's been deliberate obfuscation of dates. For example, the, the Xs themselves have dates set back to 97 for whatever reason, to make them look like they're not new. But but tearing these things apart, they have found instances of th- that are much newer. For example, this has it, it, in the version of SQL Lite, which is installed inside, is, three, is version 3.6.22 from January 5th of 2010. So, you know, this is in fact much newer 
although the, 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 the date stamps are deliberately set back to make it look older. So Crisis, in their report, says that they have found evidence of five different encryption methods. And I happen to note one of them is as simple as XORing with FF. So that just flips, it just inverts all the bits of the byte. So that's very fast and it's simple. Yeah, um, it's effective. Uh, uh, Unless you're looking uh, yes. for it. It's easy to decrypt, right? But, if you're, but only if yes. you're looking for it. Right. Um, then, but there is, for example, also RC4 encryption, which is strong right. when it's applied correctly. You know, it, it was what it was encrypting WEP protocol originally and, in fact, still encrypts TKIP when it's, when, it's be, when, when it's being used because there's nothing wrong with it when you use it correctly. So five different methods of encryption, three different methods of compression, five different known file formats plus some proprietary formats – um, and for example, the the SQL Lite database is one of the well known formats, which it just uses unmodified. Um, it uses, as I mentioned before, completely new, previously unknown code injection technology. Um, it um, locally stores information that which it gathers in this in a highly structured SQL Lite database. Get this, Leo. It uses the Lua scripting language oh yeah excellent choice so, <laughs> so. lua i actually studied lua it's a really nice scripting language you know what's written yes. in lua uh is uh, well a, couple, a lot of games use lua yeah exactly to uh for a command uh, kind of code and then um lightroom adobe lightroom is written in lua it's a scripting yeah. language it's a good glue glue language that's true it's a nice language it's also free so it's nice it's to open. know yeah. that these people were they not pirating. Open source. yeah yeah <laughs> You know, Wordsworth had an interesting hypothesis in the chat room. He says, it sounds like it was engineered in small modules deployed independently to see whether they could be detected prior to being integrated into a, a, a larger malware package. Is that, does that, is that the feeling you're feasible. getting? It's interesting, yeah. Yeah, it's certainly feasible. It Apparently, like all of these late model malware, there is a, there's a, a component that installs itself and hides itself and arranges to run. So that you've got to have that. A little stub it, program. It's not very big, yes. I'm sure. Yeah. Exactly. And and then it knows how to go to ch check in with headquarters. You know, then we've seen various types of command and control. The, 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 the most recent ones are those where it uses the time and date and a, a cryptographic algorithm to dynamically generate domain names on the fly. So they're not built into it. You can't just like look at a list of domain names, but at a certain time and date, it dynamically generates a domain name and the bad guys have, have pre-registered that domain and arranged DNS so that it's able to look up, you know, where they, where, where they now are. So, I mean, this has gotten very sophisticated and, Unfortunately, the, the, the net provides, you know, this kind of power. It's the benefit of the Internet, but also, you know, a substantial liability. This is, this is the weak point. The weak link, I guess, in these viruses is they need to contact a server for command and control. And that, you know, knowing that information lets you block the server. So they're being very clever about delaying the activation of that server and, hot, and, and, and obscuring. But as soon as they connect, isn't it obvious? I mean, don't we then know, ah, we got them. 
Because well, they have to make know, an explicit connection. There are also uh, sometimes they use Tor. Sometimes they, they bounce through relays a few times. But, but yes, your point is it's very much the same way that our domestic FBI follow the money. Because, you know, the bad guys who are extorting have to somehow get paid. That's their weak link. Is, and, and so, you know, it's, it's possible similarly to, to track that and catch them, which is often what happens. So information gathering by this master espionage program are keystrokes on the keyboard, screen captures, which are grabbed and compressed and then stuck into the SQL database, the microphone, so audio being recorded, contents of the drive, and not just all of it, but, but specific searches and, and, and requests are fulfilled. Uh, it's sniffing the network and, and collecting data from the network. It knows about Wi-Fi and is able to exploit that when available. It knows about Bluetooth. And is, if Bluetooth radio is on, it, it will sit there and monitor a Bluetooth channel uh, and USB and system processes. Uh, and it contains rootkit injection and hiding techniques, also new, never, never seen before. So Crisis said, the results of our technical analysis support the hypothesis that Skywiper, which is their name for the same thing, was developed by a government agency of a nation state with significant budget and effort. Jeez. And it may be related to cyber warfare activities. Mm-hmm, yeah, yeah mm-hmm, you think? Mm-hmm, uh-huh. mm-hmm. Skywiper is certainly the most sophisticated malware we encountered during our practice. Arguably, it is the most complex malware ever found. And finally, um, the, as I mentioned before, uh, it looks like it's been around for at least five years, you know, doing something, doing its thing. And, 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 Part of the modular nature of this is the fact that once you get that kernel installed and propagated, you are able to evolve this over time. So today's flame, or as Crisis calls it, uh, uh, Skywiper, may not be what was there five years ago. These capabilities can be added over time, and these things are able to evolve. Um, so as I mentioned, it was, it's been found around the globe for many years. Um, the, uh, uh, the whole package is 20 meg. This one key, that msseCMGR.ocx file, is generally around a meg, but there have been different versions of it each time that it's been seen, uh, sometimes a little larger than a megabyte, sometimes a little smaller than a megabyte. Um, and Crisis said, since they were heavily involved in the discovery and analysis of Dooku, um, their preliminary analysis suggests that Skywiper was not, they said in bold caps, made by the same development team as Stuxnet and Dooku. Interesting. So, wow. Really, really. There's a novel yeah. in here. There's a nonfiction. I would, I would love to see somebody like John Markoff really dig his teeth into this and, and figure out what happened in the whole story. Because, boy, that would be a fascinating book. Fascinating. It's interesting, it's interesting, too, how with the archives of the past that we're now beginning to accumulate just because we've got virtually limitless hard drive storage – that it is possible to turn back the clock and and you know find things that once existed right you know so it's possible to you know to look at the state of the internet 5 years ago <laughs> internet archaeology yeah and and you know and do you know do true um 
uh, analysis, you know, like, like not only reverse engineering of this, but reverse engineering of its history before it was known to exist. So it really can be done. So anyway, I will certainly uh, be looking for people who tweet any new findings about this, uh, and uh, I'll track them down and figure out what they mean and, and report to people. Fascinating. Fascinating. Speaking of tweeting, um, I got a couple interesting uh, little bits from the Twitterverse. A couple tweets from people who do work at ISPs who have been working to remediate DNS changer troubles. We talked about this a week or two ago um, where the, you know, and and you, you remember you had strong feelings about the FBI having yeah. you know, <laughs> and, and given control over to the ISC. The FBI and the, in so, the middle attack, I call it. <laughs> yes. So, uh, you know, I think there was a little bit of uh, stub toes uh, from from ISPs uh, feeling like, well, we were saying they weren't doing anything. It turns out it's just a difficult thing to do. So they're, you know, they are working to to detect when their users are have computers that are, are are checking with these malicious DNS servers and somehow trying to notify them of of that fact. So that was good to know. And I mentioned an alternative to permit cookies, a Firefox extension I have loved for years and, and used until it seemed for me to stop working. But Todd uh, Eddy, E-D-D-Y, in Ohio, sent me a tweet noting that he is maintaining the abandoned Firefox permit cookies add-on but only to repair critical bugs, and he continually updates the the version compatibility tag. Um, I, I don't know what the problem was. I did try to update mine to this one that he's maintaining. I think under Firefox 12, but it might have been 11. But it you know it no longer functioned, and so I abandoned it for the the um, that uh, push button cookie uh, gizmo that basically replaces it that I told our listeners about last week. Yeah. And finally, I got uh, a note from uh, someone who's written before, Christian Alexandrov, who apparently suffered a 5.8 magnitude earthquake um, in Bulgaria, uh, and many hard drives were damaged, not surprisingly, by that. He said, hello, Steve, I want to share a Spinrite story. He said, oh, the, the, the subject goes, when earthquake strikes, Spinrite strikes back. He said, I want to share a, I share a Spinrite story with Security Now listeners. Recently, a few days ago, earthquakes struck our country. Earthquakes magnitude was 5.8. That's a big earthquake, Leo. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, yeah, okay. big for Not- Bulgaria. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, here in California, well, that's yeah, just that's a little right. tembler. Yeah, our, we, we just have our overpasses <laughs> rocking a little bit. No, it's a big earthquake. It's big. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bulgaria is in seismological calm area, and such. That's why it's a big deal, see, because it's yes. uh, unfamiliar to them. They're he not said, prepared. Such earthquakes are rare. The last earthquake equal to this one was 167 years ago. Whoa! Yeah, I wonder how they know that because we have the Richter scale. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, well, um, something like it. Yeah, the earthquake created a lot of work for me and for Spinrite. I go all over. <laughs> Sophia City to help to revive hard disks that suffered damage caused by the earthquake. So clearly, you know, pedestal-based PCs fell over while they were spinning. Wow. And that's not good for the hard disk. That actually is quite a bit of shaking if your PC fell over. Yeah. Jeez. Uh, And so he said, um, 
uh, within that entire range, I maintain only four PCs were not damaged at all, regardless of the fact the PCs were working during the earthquake. Um, and then I'm going to uh, skip this paragraph where he talks about the four that weren't damaged. Mm-hmm. He says, however, on many places, I had to go with Spinrite as my tool of choice. A lot of hard drives were damaged. Spinrite gave a lot of drives that special care they needed to make them good for work again. Some people called me to try and fix their hard drives before they asked for help from PC repair services, or sometimes they called me after. Get this. Of all the range of PCs I maintain, I was the only one who used Spinrite and brought over 180 damaged hard drives back to life. And it was a wide variety of hard drives from from 20 gigabyte UATA33 to one terabyte SATA3 drives that were saved and brought back to life by Spinrite. Needless to say, there were a lot of U and R red squares on all drives on the first level four scan and a lot of B icons on second level on second level four scan where the U and R icons were before. And also needless to say, what large number of files were saved and a large number of systems now work fine. Suddenly, I become a PC hero for saving PCs and bringing hard disks back to life and saving files and OSs. Work here is still in progress, many drives still to fix, and many are taken care of by Spinrite. I do somewhere between 10 and 15 drives at a time, and many computers have two or three physical hard drives in them. Steve, once again, thank you for your great piece of software, and once again, thank you, Steve and Leo, for the great Security Now podcast. I wish best of luck to both GRC.com and twit.tv a happy Spinrite user. Wow. So, well, there you go. Now a, you have a new slogan. Uh, for <laughs> earth, Built for earthquake country. <laughs> Jeez. Yeah. That's fascinating. Cool. That is really interesting. Hey, we're going to take a break. When we come back, it's time to talk about the holes in TCP. I presume not intentional holes. Or how to make holes. <laughs> All of the above. Poking holes in TCP, but first a word about movies every night. You know what I set up in my house? I'm so happy about this. I I have put I basically built a uh, a movie theater. I have a motorized projection, 120 inch, 10 foot projection screen that comes down, and then I turn on the projector, and then I fire up Netflix and my Onkyo 616 because it supports Netflix. Of course, I have Apple TV, I have a PS3, I have an Xbox 360, I have a Roku box. I could watch Netflix in a hundred ways, and I start streaming movies. And you know, even in a 10 foot screen, Netflix looks pretty darn good. I am really impressed. Uh, some just some great movies. If you uh, if you want to uh, have you caught up on the Tudors, what a great show that is! You can watch that from Showtime. TV shows, movies, documentaries, films. That uh, I love the documentaries because you never see those in theaters, and you get to see them. Uh, comedy, tragedy, classics. It's all there for. Get this. It's the best deal in entertainment. $7.99 a month. Goodwill Hunting. Oh, that'd be fun. I haven't seen that in ages. Got to watch that. That was the that was the movie that launched Matt Damon. Remember that? He was wicked yeah, smart. And, 
Yeah, and um, Affleck was in that too. Yeah, it was his construction, his, his hard hat. But that's right. That was they were the. I think they wrote it, didn't they? That was the whole story yeah, of that. Yeah, and Gus yeah, Van Zandt directed. The Graduate. One word: plastics. You could. Go, I could go on and on and on. There's great entertainment waiting for you tonight. If you're not yet a, a Netflix subscriber. You could do it for free for a month. That's even better than seven ninety nine. Free for a month. How about this? I got to watch this. From Prada to Nada. <laughs> I don't know what that's about, but I like maybe, the name. Maybe, maybe not. <laughs> Mystic you know. Pizza. These are chick flicks. Yeah. <laughs> My girlfriend's boyfriend. Uh, Twelve dates of Christmas. See, they got everything. If maybe maybe you're a guy and you have a secret like uh, interest in chick flicks, but you don't want to admit it to your to your girl, now you can watch them at home at night by yourself. On Netflix, even on the iPad and the iPhone and the Android phones. Try it free for 30 days. Netflix.com slash Twitter. I love the classics too. Blythe Spirit. What a great movie. Rex Harrison, Constance Cummings. So many great movies on here. I want you to give it a try. Netflix.com slash Twitter. And I know you're already a member because pretty much everybody who listens to this show probably has been a member for years. So do me a favor. Help us spread the word. Tell your friends. Netflix.com. Slash twit. Do they have Just Like Heaven? Speaking of chick flicks. What's that? Is that oh, a... That's a favorite movie of mine. It has Reese, Reese Witherspoon. Oh, dear. So oh, Steve, that's ooh, a guilty ooh, pleasure. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> I'll look it up for you. She's adorable. I've never, I've never seen that. Oh, it's a great movie. Just by all Like means. Heaven, huh? Just Like Heaven. It's a... Uh, yeah, by all means. When you're in a chick flick mode, uh, there's, you know... It's it's right up there. Like with shortly those. after David Abbott, Mark Ruffalo. I like Mark Ruffalo. He was yes. uh, he was yes. TV's uh, Hulk, or not TV movie. He was the Hulk in the Avengers movie. He's the co-star. Yeah. Makes his move into a new San Francisco home. He has an unwelcome visitor on his hands. Winsome Elizabeth Martinson, played by Reese Witherspoon, who asserts mm-hmm. that the apartment is hers and promptly vanishes. And As then in like, disappears, disappears into smoke. Yes, he thinks she's a ghost. She's convinced she's alive. The Quest for the truth ultimately leads to love in this special romantic comedy. Okay. <laughs> you admitted it. Yeah. PG-13. I like it. <laughs> I love you, Steve. I love you. <laughs> I tell you, you never know with Steve. You hear the fringe. You hear, you know, uh, Stargate. And then this. It's just. Yeah. Let us continue on poking holes in TCP, shall we? Speaking of poking holes um, in TCP. Yes. Um, so <laughs> some, uh, some, some researchers, two security researchers in Michigan. I have to warn everybody, if you did not have your propeller caps on. This time? If you, if, maybe this is a, 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 you know, a good po- a part, a, a spot to pause and go, you know, refresh your coffee or open a new can of i hope you're not opening a can of soda because that's not good for no, you but, sardines um no, that's there you go a there can of go. sardines go get a can of sardines because okay, this is going to get a little hairy but it's it's good hairy um i mean it's important hairy and a perfect perfect topic for you know this podcast that pushes the limits of what we're able to do over an audio channel uh we're going to do that today so a couple researchers were looking at the security of primarily cellular networks. That is, their their platform focused was Android, and and Android connected to the internet via cellular was the the scenario they set up. 
what we'll talk about is broader than that, really, but, but they've only focused on that. And it's broader because it's really about the Transmission Control Protocol, TCP, which is the basis for the web and all kinds of of apps which are now using TCP behind the scenes. They may not look like a web browser, but they're actually setting up persistent connections back to a server um, in order to communicate. For example, when I have TweetDeck up, it's got a, it's got TCP connections open through which it's it's uh, using the Twitter API to to communicate. So, okay, so what they discovered was that. There were what they called middleware firewalls installed in these mobile networks. In they detected them. I think they checked 147 mobile networks, and they found them in 31 percent of them. So about one third of them. The firewalls were there to block unwanted traffic. Just to sort of like it was just sort of they just stuck a firewall sort of in the middle of their network and said, okay, you know, at this point, anything going in either direction that looks funky, let's get rid of it. Well, these are stateful firewalls, which, which know which connections have been made through them. And that way, they're very much like our NAT routers that we've talked about, that, that are stateful routers where incoming packets are just dropped because they don't correspond to a connection that was initiated from the inside out which is what allows connections to come back or packets of connections to come back in. So, so these are firewalls, which when a, when a SYN packet, a synchronized TCP synchronized packet is encounters a firewall on its way to a, a, a destination on the other side of the firewall, the firewall makes note of it. It looks at the source IP and port at the destination IP and port and adds that to its, okay, a connection is being set up through me table. Then when the answering SYNAC comes back to the firewall, it makes sure that that SYNAC is expected. And if and if so, it updates its tables and passes that the SYNAC on towards its destination. So it's sort of a it, it it's a, a blockade just sitting at at an arbitrary middle point in a cellular provider's network because if SYN packets are just, you know, uh, like a, a from a denial of service attack, if, if a SYN packet hits it um, that it isn't expecting or an ACK packet or, or something, you know, bogus in one way or another, it just ignores it. Well, one of the things that these firewalls do is they validate... The traffic on an ongoing basis. Not they don't. They watch the, the setup, and people who have followed along with our talk about how TCP works will remember that the reason we call a SYN packet S Y N a SYN is SYN is short for synchronize, and this is the the connection initiator saying I'm going to number my packets starting at this number, and there's a there's a sequence a 32-bit sequence counter in all TCP packets, which numbers the first byte of the payload in that packet. So, for example, if 
a sender were to send out packets of a thousand bytes, then successive packets would contain these sequence numbers that were a thousand larger each time. Well, that's done because, as we well know, packets don't always arrive in order at the other end. The route that packets take is not predetermined by either the sender or the receiver. Those are determined just by routing tables among all the routers that link these two points. So it's possible that one router could be busy um, and an interface might be uh, backed up so it routes the packet somewhere else so a later packet could get to its, its destination sooner. So it's necessary to number the bytes in the packet so that they can be reassembled in the proper sequence when they arrive. So TCP has been a target of attack in the past. And the sequence numbers are one of the weaknesses of TCP. So if we were to step back for a minute and, and come up with a, a, a lesson that we're about to learn, it, it is that if you have a fundamentally unsecure protocol, there isn't a way to add security later. It was, a, it was an argument that I made against Backblaze where they sort of tried to add a user password in a hokey way to give people a greater sense of security, but it actually achieved nothing in terms of, of true security for the user or it achieved very little. That is, you, they, they had a broken model where they were doing the decryption at their server end and that couldn't change no matter what they added on top of it. In the case of TCP... It was designed, as we know, literally decades ago, back when numbering packets with a 32-bit count seemed like more than enough. It was that, you know, 32 bits gives us 4 billion. And there's nothing wrong with these counters wrapping, that is, counting up to 4 billion and then wrapping around back to zero. They do that all the time. TCP understands that if it has a high packet number and then suddenly it's got one very near zero, that it didn't go, it didn't go back four billion. It just went ahead a few. So it, it allows and handles gracefully that wraparound from the maximum back to the minimum as all the, all the binary bits, all 32 binary bits fill up with ones and then click back over to zero again. So, so, the designers thought, well, four billion. Now, the the reason we have sequence numbers is several. One is, as I mentioned, we want to number the bytes that we're sending in each direction. So, so a TCP packet has a has a sequence number for its data that it's carrying, and it also has a sequence number which acknowledges the most recently in order, received in order packet that it has received. So what normally is happening is after the SYN goes and then the SYN ACK comes back, a final ACK is sent, an acknowledgement, acknowledging the SYN, the SYN of the SYN ACK packet. From then on, all the packets going back and forth have their ACK bits set each end 
acknowledging what they've received so far from the other end. So the system works nicely. 32 bits to number the data. So that's that's plenty. It means that that if if packets come in out of sequence, it's obvious how they should be arranged. The other purpose for this though is because packets wander around the internet, we, we know that they're clipped off by their TTL field, the time to live, which decrements is decremented by every router which forwards the packet. And any router which decrements it to zero will send back an expired notice to the sender of the packet saying, well, I tried to, you know, I tried to send this. I wanted to, but TTL went to zero. And if we didn't honor that, the Internet absolutely would crash because packets would, could never, would never die. They just roam around forever and, and fill up the Internet. So the fact that they die is crucial. But it still means that if you have a very high bandwidth connection and a long delay between endpoints, it's, it's difficult to see how you could have 4 billion bytes in flight at any time. And the designers were very comfortable with the idea that 32 bits would never wrap around within the lifetime of a single packet on the net. And that's the key, is that you, because connections, TCP connections, come up and down and up and down, they're, they're often very short-lived connections. They establish, send something, and then drop again. Um, and then the connection may be reinitiated now, the problem between the same two endpoints, connections are identified by the source IP and port and destination IP and port. And so if you brought the connection up, sent some traffic, took it apart, and then brought it back up again and made another connection, what, you wanted, what the designers of TCP wanted to guarantee against was the possibility that lost packets wandering around from the previous session, the, the previous connection, might be confused with packets from this session. So the way they solve that problem is by, by advancing the sequence numbers forward for, actually for the whole system, they normally, they, they do it system-wide so that any connection that is, it is created uses forward-moving sequence numbers so that all of the numbered traffic that is leaving it will, will never have the same numbers as older traffic. And, and that's a little confusing because you would think that we're always counting from zero. The idea is that that SYN packet, the sequence packet, says we're going to count from this number. So this number equals zero and a 1,000 plus this number equals 1,000. So the idea being that these sequence numbers move forward and in what was once a uniform fashion. Well, the hackers figured out that they could take advantage of older operating systems' uniform sequencing. That is, the idea was they figured out that by, by talking to a server, um, for example, a router, they could 
they could determine the router's current sequence number and because they would get some they would initiate a connection to it it would send back its sin ack that would tell them the current state of the sequence number then what these clever hackers did was they were able to spoof tcp traffic because they were able to guess what other connections that either later existed or pre-existed, they, they could guess the probable sequence numbers of those connections. So this, this was a huge problem for the Internet, and it resulted in the randomization of TCP sequence, these initial sequence numbers, the ISNs for communications. So for a while, there was a problem because the, the hackers figured out how to get the, the sequence numbers of probable connections. The response was to randomize those. And in fact, what Linux does is uh, a, a being 32 bits, that's four bytes. Linux takes the, the highest, the most significant byte and increments it every five minutes. And then for the lower 24 bits, they just use a random number. So it's jumping all around within one 256th of the total sequence number space. And that's moving forward, jumping forward every five minutes. So that, that, that was, that's still believed to be about the best trade-off you, you can come up with for, between random and still meeting some of the goals of moving sequence numbers in gen generally forward over time so that you don't have various types of, of re replay attacks. So what these guys in Michigan figured out is a new way of determining a connection's packet sequence numbering. And that's bad because when you think about it, there, there isn't any protection in TCP. I mean, there, there really isn't. It's, it's only obscurity which protects TCP. It's the fact that, that unless you can see the traffic going back and forth, you don't know for sure what the, what the originating port was. You may know what the destination port. If it's a server, for example, HTTP, it's going to be port 80. If it's going to be SSL, it's port 443. If it's, going to, if it's POP, it's port 110 and so forth. You know, SMTP port 25. We know those so-called well-known ports at the server end. We also know the server's IP. And we may know the originator's IP. So now we have just the question of what port it generated its traffic from. And unfortunately, most OSs still do that in a uniform from the bottom up fashion they num they they just I issue traffic sequentially so if you can get the oh, that client to talk to you you know what its current outbound port enumeration is and so that gives you lots of information from which you can spoof tcp traffic and that's what we're talking about here we're talking about about a new way to insert traffic into tcp sessions that gets around this problem that the initial sequence numbers are now being randomized by all contemporary operating systems. So 
what these guys do is they have they have a they have a number of approaches um, that they that they take. I'll, I'll describe one in more detail because it's it's representative and it'll give you a, a, a sense for this. Their main exploit is not completely standing off to the side and attacking. It is possible to do that, and they outline how that can be done. I explained how you can know what their what their IP is, what their source port is. You know what the destination port and the destination IP is. Um, and so, so there are completely like third-party attacks, which they have identified and verified. But the one that works best is one which is also really interesting because it demonstrates an interesting failure in sandboxing. They implemented this with Android-based phones um, from, uh, shoot, it was HTC, Samsung, and Motorola using Android version 2.2 and 2.3.4 from those manufacturers. And they installed an unprivileged piece of software. We'll call it malware because it's not doing what you want it to do. It, you know, it may be offering some service to you, but it's also doing more than that. But, but this malware is unprivileged, meaning does not your phone does not need to be jailbroken. Uh, it's not even breaking out of the sandbox because they discovered some very clever side channel leakage about the, the TCP stack on any contemporary operating system. And that is if you, for example, in Windows, if you open a console window and type netstat, you get an enumeration of all the system-wide TCP connections. And as of, I think, XP and on, there's a, you can add a command line switch that will tell you which processes are involved with those connections. So you can see that IE has the, the following connections open here and, and uh, TweetDeck has them open there and so forth. Well, uh, and in fact, you, there's, there's one other thing. There's netstat-s, which shows you an array of counters, which all, all Internet operating systems, starting with Unix and, and since, have maintained. These are things like the total number of packets sent, the total number of packets received, an array of, of error information, which is also available. Now, Linux implements has the same thing, which it implements differently. There's something called the PROC file system, P-R-O-C-F-S. And, and it's sort of a clever way. It's, it's not actually a file system of data that exists in any, in any storage media. It was, it's just a, a nice, clean way for the operating system to publish real-time information about things going on with it. And, for example, there's a, a path proc uh, slash back, or forward slash proc forward slash net forward slash SNMP, which stands for Simple Network Management Protocol, and then INSEGS, I-N-S-E-G-S, returns a count of the total number of TCP packets received. Um, the same thing, proc net 
netstat colon in errors, E-R-R-S, is a count of the erroneous packets received, like packets that have been received with a broken checksum, where, where the checksum doesn't match. Um, and there's one called PA, uh, also under netstat, P-A-W-S estab, P-A-W-S-E-S-T-A-B. That's a count of old timestamp packets Pause. PAWS is an acronym for Protect Against Wrapped Sequences, and that's exactly what I was talking about. Uh, the, the the concern of sequences wrapping. Uh, the the designers decided that they needed more than thirty two bits, and they realized that the timestamp was a feature just never really took off and got used. So they could use that as a upward compatible means of providing some disambiguation. Um, but it generates, it increments this count in the operating system if a timestamp is received, if a packet is received with a bad timestamp. The point of all this is that the these guys in Michigan realized that if they had some software running in an Android phone, it could detect by using these this common globally available information this is an unprivileged read every it's it's everybody all apps in linux have access to the proc file system you don't it's just it's it's readable everybody can have it so what this provides is a so-called side channel attack in in we've talked about those in various contexts before but never in this context where where something leaks information that can be used for example Classic crypto has side channel attacks if it takes differing lengths of time to respond to like an encryption operation or a decryption operation um, depending upon the data or the key. Because if you if you then use precise timing measurements, you know, you somehow induce a system to try to decrypt what you're giving it with an unknown key. And, and you look at the at the time it takes. If its time varies with the key, then it's leaking information in the time domain, which is you know that's a perfect side channel example. It's not saying you know it, I mean it's not giving you your data back pro- properly, but it is leaking information that it didn't intend to. One of the reasons that AES was adopted was it it is inherently power and time stable. It does not allow those kinds of side channel attacks, which is one. In fact, I don't think any of the submissions do um, or allow that because it's now well understood that you just can't have crypto do that. What has not until now been understood is that doing something as benign as allowing an app to look at counters from the TC from the system wide TCP stack is all it takes to launch exploits against other applications in on the same OS. And that's what these guys have showed. So what they did is they have this, this piece of malware installed in an Android phone. Um, you know, three different phones, two, two different versions of Android from HTC, Samsung, and Motorola. So this is it's widespread. They used an undisclosed nationwide cellular carrier. Their report doesn't want to point fingers at anybody. And it's not just one carrier that is doing this. 
they all do. I do know that it was um, a, a GPRS-based technology because they referred to uh, GPRS at, at one point in their, uh, some data files at, at one point in their report. So they have a, an attacking server located somewhere else that this malware is communicating with. And, and understand, in, the, in a real-world scenario, uh, users would, would innocently think they had downloaded, you know, an a, a Android version of Fire Sheep or of, you know, uh, how many calories have I eaten today app or, or something that looks like it's, you know, absolutely benign. In fact, it, and it never breaks out of the technical sandbox but it establishes a connection to a malicious server, and then it waits. It waits for some activity on the phone that it wants to intercept. It might be instant messaging. It might be Twitter. It might be web browsing, uh, you know, whatever it's designed to do. It's able to look at the processes running, and, and it's also able from Netstat to look at the processes that are communicating and it knows, because Netstat shows it, both of the endpoints. It knows the local IP and port and the remote IP and port. What it doesn't know is the sequence numbering for that connection. So as soon as it sees a connection coming up, it, it, com it communicates with the, a, a, a server located remotely that, that it's time to get busy and try to get into this connection. So the, the initial um, sequence packet opening a connection goes from the phone toward the true destination. Well, you know, say Google, uh, just to pick an example. And, and the attacking server now sends a flood of probes back into the network aimed at the client. The between this attacking server and the client is this firewall, which is, which is intending to do the right thing. It's going to block packets that don't have matching sequence numbers, that, who, that is, whose sequence numbers are unexpected. There is a window which moves along, that, that moves forward, of sequence numbers that will be accepted and anything outside the window are rejected. So the idea is this thing, the attacking server, floods the, the, the connection back toward the client with guesses. And it, they've even figured out how to binary search the entire four, um, giga, uh, four gigabyte, four gigabit, sorry, four gigabit, the 32-bit um, sequence number. They figured out how they can do a binary search in order to narrow it down. So, so the client is, what the client is doing, it cannot see that this, this, the malware running on the phone cannot see the traffic coming back. But the, the malicious server is deliberately generating packets using the time stamping option, which it knows are going to fail. So this one counter in the TCP stack, this, this PW, P, the PAWSE stab 
which is the count of old timestamp packets received, it's normally not used. That counter normally sits at zero. So the point is it's not noisy. It's, they're not having to disambiguate other reasons for it to be incre incremented than their own. So what they've essentially done is they've managed to come up with a, a communications path through this side channel off the TCP stack that allows the malicious client in the phone to notify the server when its packets get through the firewall. That tells it then, that allows it to zero in on the sequence numbering of the connection and, and then verify that, that it, it knows where the connection sequence numbers are. Then it's able to respond as the original server was. It sends a reset packet to the to the original destination server which resets the connection the the reset packet just causes for example in, in this case it would be google causes google to ignore the 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 connection and and reset packets are 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 honored by all servers and google doesn't know why the user changed his mind about connecting to it doesn't care just simply drops the connection completely um so Google has, no longer has any interest in the connection. In order for the reset packet to be accepted, it has to fit within the, this window. It has to be a valid sequence numbered reset packet. But the attacking server has been able to determine what that is by, uh, through this probe. So Google has dropped off the connection. Now the attacker is able to send data in lieu of what Google would send as the response to whatever query the user initiated. Now, this is tricky because remember that the traffic is not going to the bad guy. The traffic is going to Google's IP, and it's always going to go there. The traffic will continue going there, but Google's own firewalls or its operating systems will simply drop the traffic. It's, it's, it, th that connection has been reset so the traffic coming in is not part of a known connection and it gets ignored. So the, the acknowledgments from the, the original client application running on the mobile phone are ignored. But when you think about it, there's nothing in TCP that actually requires that both ends receive the data that the other one is sending. That is, the, the malicious guy has a valid sequence number for the data going to the client on the mobile phone. He can assume the data gets there. He can assume packet after packet after packet are being acknowledged. The acknowledgments he never sees, they go to Google and they're ignored because the connection has been reset. They're just dropped. So we now have a situation where a, an app on a mobile phone initiated an, an, a, a TCP connection to some service, Facebook, Twitter, Google, uh, whatever, or maybe has a longstanding connection open if, this, if, if, the, if the malware wants to go in and inject things in, into existing connections. So, but, but in this scenario, they open a connection – as far as the app knows in the phone, everything's fine. 
It sends its, its sin off to open the connection, and the next thing it gets is a valid sin act with a sequence number, which it accepts because it's coming from the, the malicious server. And, um, and Google accepts the reset packet because the bad guy figured out what the, the sequence number was in that direction because that was allowed to get through the blocking firewall in the middle. Now, the app running in the mobile phone receives data, but it could be um, an HTTP redirect, which bounces them to a clone website um, without them seeing it. Or, um, and, and these researchers achieved that. They also achieved installing JavaScript, injecting JavaScript into uh, the connection and, and causing the JavaScript to run in the context of the, your relationship with Google, which means if you were permanently logged into Google, then, then they're able to send all of the information that your browser would normally never share with anyone but Google to, you know, off in any direction that they want to. So uh, that's the, the gist of this. It is, I mean, it sounds, it is complex. To me, as I'm reading this, I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, this doesn't sound like the kind of thing that, that everyone is going to, that is, everyone's going to get infected by, but it's perfect for targeted attacks or, you know, with time, this kind of attack could mature to the point where apps are offered on, um, on Android stores, uh, people download them and the malware starts up in the background and gets up to its mischief. Now, I guess I'm, I feel of two minds about this. I mean, all the details are in this 14-page report that allows somebody as good as these guys are, and there are a lot of smart hackers in the world, to duplicate this. That is, nothing is left unknown. And the reason I'm of two minds about it is that it's not clear how we solve this. I mean, it's, I mean, I guess providing the the side channel information from the TCP stack only to root-based apps might make sense. Um, but who knows what you would break? Who knows what apps are actually using that information for some purpose? So, so I mean, th that fundamentally changes the way all of our Unix and Unix-derived and also Windows systems function. So we have a, we have a new problem which has surfaced that in the context of mobile phones breaks the sandbox and allows malicious packets to get injected. Now, the one thing that stops this cold is HTTPS because there's no way if an HTTPS connection is being established, there's no way for the bad guy to to have the a valid certificate that the browser is going to require and verify. So throughout their paper, these guys mentioned that, you know, they did find in a secure connection with somebody, I think it was either Facebook or Twitter, there were two connections that still were not running over SSL. Um, but, but this, you know, one thing this says to us is that 
and certainly in a mobile network scenario where we're assuming that the encryption that the mobile provider is sufficient is is HTTP and unencrypted connections really are not sufficient. We really need to use end-to-end authentication and and that and pretty much that that alone gives TCP the additional layer of of authentication and privacy that it needs. Um, TCP by itself just doesn't do it. It wasn't it wasn't designed to do it. It was designed to work, and it really works well. But it's not very attack resistant, unfortunately. Isn't that cool, Leo? One I more mean, reason why uh, HTTPS everywhere is a good idea. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. It is. Uh, you know, I mean, th- here's this is some seriously clever hacking. Uh, and a, and an interesting way of using a little bit of just a little bit of information leaking across the OS boundary, which is you know how many errors of a certain type have we seen, and then deliberately generating those kinds of errors on packets that may or may not get through a middleware firewall, and using that to probe the firewall, which in turn releases information about the state of the TCP connection that would otherwise never be available. And then you exploit that in order to hijack the TCP connection. Wow. Wow. <laughs> and is this in the wild or is this just uh, now a, a, merely an academic exercise? Academic exercise. Okay. Um, so I we don't have to fear be, it. Don't, yeah, there's, there's nothing to fear. Except that it's hand, been documented now. and so there's, Yes. There's also nothing to do, really. Um, I mean, I, I would love to see... Um, uh, Android lock this stuff down, yeah. and I would be surprised if they don't. I mean, everybody. I got I got so many tweets about this. People saying, "Okay, I don't know what these guys said, Steve. Could you explain it to us?" So, <laughs> what does it mean? Well, now we know <laughs> what it means. Bad? I don't it know. If sounds you, bad. This looks bad. I don't know if bad. You feel any better? But now we know what it means anyway. <laughs> yes. So uh, this show, uh, as with uh, all of the previous 354 episodes, lives in several places. You can. Of course, watch us live every uh, Wednesday, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, 1800 UTC, right here on twit.tv. But if you if you missed a show or uh, I think more likely you wanted to listen again or even read a transcription, Steve makes uh, text transcriptions available as well as 16 kilobit audio versions at his site, grc.com. We also have audio and video and higher quality uh, uh, versions at twit.tv. And you can get it on a podcaster uh, like iTunes or Downcast or any of those uh, as well. In fact, that's the best way. Subscribe to the version you like. That way you'll never miss an episode. And you'll own all 355 at absolutely no charge. Steve also makes uh, a lot of other great things available at GRC.com, including his bread and butter, Spinrite, world's best hard drive maintenance and recovery utility. He also has a lot of freebies there, including the world-famous Shields Up, uh, and lots of free security stuff, too. GRC.com. Now, when you're there, if you have a question about this or anything uh, in the realm of security, privacy, vitamin D, or fish oil, you can <laughs> or ketogenic diets, you can leave those questions uh, for uh, us to talk about next week because uh, every other episode we do a feedback episode. GRC.com slash feedback. Did I, did I miss anything there? I should mention that I've I've had a bunch of Really neat feedback from our two uh, over the Sugar Hill episodes over oh, at grc.com wow. yeah. health. And there is a feedback page there for health-related stuff. Anybody who uh, wants to, to share their experiences, I've got a, 
a user experiences page and an FAQ page that I will be updating shortly. So I'd uh, love to hear uh, what people think. My dad just and, sent uh, me an email saying, you know, you got to be taking vitamin D. I said, been there, done that, know all about it. And I sent him a link <laughs> to your health uh, page. Uh, I said, we did a show about it. And uh, yeah, in fact, I've been talking to my doctor about the ketogenic diet. He's really interested in that uh, art and science of low-carbohydrate living that uh, that we're using oh, as our I forgot to Bible. say, we... I got email from Jeff Bond. Whoa. The author of Deadly Harvest. Whoa. Um, apparently, we spiked his sales, and he's now the number one rated <laughs> uh, preventative health book awesome. on, the, on, on Amazon. The power of the Gibson. And, uh, and so he, he sent me a note saying, hey, thanks, Steve. That's uh, great. Uh, he got a kick out of the fact that I wasn't that enamored of, with the name of the book. Uh, <laughs> I, you know, but I understood that it wouldn't sell as many copies if it was you know, uh, titled Nutritional Anthropology uh, that I have known. So um, anyway, that was, it was neat to hear from Jeff. Yeah. It's interesting, too, because we get people in studio all the time now who are on the ketogenic diet or have been doing it a guy was here last week lost 80 pounds looked great another guy who had celiac disease so he was compelled to because of his intolerance for wheat and glutens Uh, and he also said you know he looked great he said i've lost a lot of weight um so uh every day almost somebody comes in here and says that's steve well it started with paul therat and uh, and now it's spread yep Yep. well and, and in fact many people that they they started with paul and in some cases, you know, the carbs crept back in because it's just so difficult to. It's I mean, hard. So much. Well, so, we're you know, in, it's everywhere. We're in, yes. inundated with it. We're a carb-based yeah. uh, culture. Uh, but then they said when they heard, um, you know, my two podcasts and a lot of the, you know, the biochemistry of it, they understood. In fact, one one person said that that ketosis was the only way she'd ever been able to lose weight, but it always starved her to death. Now she knew. How she could do yeah, it she knows why. and yeah. not be hungry all right. the time right. and not have to starve. So, yeah, cool stuff. Great stuff. Thank you, Steve. GRC.com. It's all there. Is it GRC.com slash health if people want to read more about that? Yep. And okay. also in, in the menu, if you go under research, there's there's health as a subtopic of the research tab. There's a lot of stuff there. Thank you, Steve. We will uh, do this next week right here. Talk to you then, Leo. See you. Security now.